And I'd have you turn to the book of Romans. We are not in John this morning. But just for today, we're going to be in Romans. I'm going to be reading verse 16 and 17 here in just a minute. As you find your place, let's pray. Father, King, Master of all things, We ask that You would reveal Yourself to every single one of Your image bearers, each man, woman, and child made in Your image here in this room, that You would speak, Lord, through Your Word. That You would captivate the heart. You're the one who can make the dead live. And You do it with just a word. And it is Your Word that brings life, that gives hope to the hopeless, cleansing to the stained, and yes, life to the dead. And so come, Lord. Come by Your Spirit, own Your Word. Take it out of the air and plant it through our ears. Give life, take away the distractions. May You make Yourself known to us in Jesus. Amen. So 504 years ago today, a little-known monk named Martin Luther accidentally launched a revolution that would shake the world. See, that's not what he set out to do as he posted his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. That door served as the bulletin board for the college where he taught, and all he really meant to do was propose a theological debate over the practice of indulgences. An indulgence, you perhaps remember, was a piece of paper you could purchase from the Pope through one of his authorized representatives, granting you or a dead loved one years off your sentence in purgatory so that you could make your way to heaven more quickly. The church in those days, having forgotten the gospel, taught that it was possible for it to give salvation and that it gave this salvation to whomever it wished through a complex system of sacraments, good works, penance, obedience, indulgences, and faith. But Luther, in his own struggles, had come to understand while reading the Bible that this was all thoroughly hogwash. Salvation could not be earned or purchased or given by any indulgence from the Pope or anyone else, but it was a gift of God through faith in Christ alone for what He has done. But as I say, Luther didn't expect much to come from the posting of his little notice. He'd been trying to get this discussion going for weeks, and few seemed to even notice. Besides, he wrote it in Latin, not in German. And so, aside from some other monks and a few of his brighter students, no one could really even read it. Then the unexpected happened. Some of his students, rascals that they are, translated it into German. People started making copies on the new invention called the printing press. And Luther, as we would say today, went viral. People everywhere were reading what he said and asking questions of their own and shock of all shocks going back to the Bible to find their answers. The result was the revolution that we call the Protestant 
Reformation, that great recovery of the central truths of the gospel, which is the message of how God saves. Not by our works or efforts, not by our performance of religious duty, not by our learning to be good, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the teaching of God's Word alone, and for the glory of God alone. Those five alones, or solas, you know, based on their Latin words, which you just heard in the confession, quickly became the background or the backbone of the Reformation as it spread and began to bring a revival across the whole of Europe. And they are still the backbone of a genuine Christian faith. That's uh, why we have them on our church's uh, little logo. You know, if you've seen it, someone says it's awfully complex for a logo. Yeah, but we wanted to get it all in there. Uh, And we wanted the solos there. It's why we have the the solos on the wall here as you come to worship. Because we, we want that constant reminder that these are indeed the anchor points of our faith. These are indeed uh, those those foundation stones upon which we stand. As Luther himself said, this is the standing place for the church. These are essentials to our faith. And at the very heart of those essentials stands this doctrine of sola fide, salvation by faith alone. With that, let's read our text. Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or, or faith and faith alone, basically. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So why does faith alone matter? Let me give you three things this morning. First, we need to understand that faith alone matters because the gospel is the good news that God saves through faith alone in Christ. Again, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so if you ask the question, how does God save sinners? And that's the question Luther was asking. The answer is... By faith in Christ alone through the gospel. That the gospel is indeed the power of God for salvation. For whom? It says for those who believe. For those who trust in Christ for all that He's done. Now saying that is not the same as saying that the gospel saves. You understand the gospel does not save God saves through the gospel. The gospel is merely the instrument that He uses. It is His means of bringing salvation through the unleashing of His power. It is, it's the conduit. It's the channel. It's what He uses. Think of it this way. When you, when you turn the light switch on in your house, the power lines outside carry electricity to the light bulb and the lights come on. But you understand that it's not the power lines that make the lights come on, it's the power they transmit. In the same way, it is not the gospel itself that saves, or even the power of your belief in the gospel that saves. It is God saves as He works powerfully through His gospel. Now why am I belaboring this? Well, I belabor it because it's vital for you to understand that salvation is from the Lord. It's His work. 
doesn't come from a plan. It doesn't come from a preacher or a church or a prayer or a pope. It is the work of God alone. It's not your work. It's not your effort to climb the ladder of spirituality uh, by saying a prayer or getting baptized or, or, or doing anything. Or as Luther's day would have thought, by becoming a monk and trying to live a really, really good life. It is God who saves sinners by the instrument of grace alone through faith in the person of Christ alone. That's why the gospel has never been, well, you do your best and God will make up the rest. No, no, no. Your best contributes nothing. Your best efforts on your best day has never contributed anything to your salvation. According to the Scriptures... You and I are sinful to the core in and of ourselves, totally powerless to save ourselves. So when the Bible speaks of us in our lost condition, it, it uses words like dead, deaf, blind, depraved, rebels, enemies of God. The gospel comes to such people and it says because you're not good enough or powerful enough, God's power is your only hope. And that's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That brings us into the next thing, what then does the gospel do? How does the God save us through this gospel? Here's the second thing to see. The gospel of faith alone, here's why it matters because it brings us a righteousness we can't get any other way. That's verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It comes on the scene for us. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is, it's faith and faith alone. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Read through the Old and New Testaments and you'll find that God is, in His very essence, a perfectly righteous judge. Holy, 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 as Isaiah saw Him. And this perfectly righteous judge created us and placed us on this planet that we might glorify Him by living in obedience to Him, by walking with Him. And just as there are physical laws to this universe, so there are moral and spiritual laws which God has revealed. And if anyone was able to keep those laws and do those commands, he or she would be counted righteous before God. And that's all it takes. Absolutely perfect obedience. It's all you got to have. And so if there is someone out there who, is, who perfectly obeys God's every command, who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, 24-7, without fail, loves his neighbor as himself at all times, always, then that person could claim salvation by works. Now, we're kind of stepping aside from the issue of Adam's sin, which we're all guilty of before we even get started. That's another part of the story as well. But nevertheless, if it were possible for this absolutely pure, pristine, sinless person to continue in life in perfect righteousness before God, that person could claim, I'm worthy. Right? Psalm 24, 3 and 4, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? The psalm answers, He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. But can you find me, such a person? 
Is there anybody here in this room this morning who would dare say, I have perfectly obeyed God in everything I've ever done, with every thought, with every action, with every word. I've obeyed and loved. Man, I have this thing down. Anybody? Because I'm going to yield the floor to you. Then it seems we have a problem, don't we? God demands a perfect righteousness. You, His creature, owe Him a perfect righteousness. Yet Scripture warns there is none righteous, not even one. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And understand, that's not just talking about some people out there doing really bad things. It's talking about all of us. In fact, look over a couple of pages to Romans 3 verse 10. Keep your place here, but Romans 3. If you were to take time to read through the first three chapters of Romans, you would very quickly see that all of mankind, popes and princes, kings and presidences, presidents, uh, your kids, your grandparents, you and me, all of us are guilty before God and deserve condemnation and death because of our sin. Not one of us has a thing to offer God except the disobedience and sin that makes salvation necessary. Romans 3 spells that out. Beginning in verse 10, he says, As it is written, none is righteous. In case you missed it, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 20 sums it up. For by the works of the law, no human being, no man, no person, no woman, no child will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of of sin. The law comes, we can't look at it and say, I'm going to obey all this because of sin in us. We look at the law and say, I'm not going to obey this. I'm going to do what I want. And so the law becomes not the instrument of our salvation, but the instrument of our damnation. So this takes us back to the question of the gospel. The question Luther was struggling with, how then can unjust sinners like us, people who are not righteous, people who have not obeyed with the kind of perfection God requires, how can we ever hope to survive the righteous judgment of an absolutely holy and perfect God? How can we be counted righteous in His sight and acceptable to Him, being that we are so full of sin? Romans 1.17 hints at the answer, for in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, in and through faith. As it is written, the righteous will live not by their works, but by faith. Zero in on that phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed. There in verse 17, and then staying in Romans 3, I don't want to confuse you here. Staying in Romans 3, listen to what Paul says, verse 21. He's going to say the same thing. Now he's going to sort of, sort of bring out what he said in verse 17 of chapter 1. But now, in light of this sinfulness that it permeates us through and through, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made apparent, brought to us apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets tell us about the righteousness we need, but it doesn't give us that righteousness. We need righteousness that the law can't give us. Where are we going to get it? Verse 22, But now the righteousness of God through faith in Christ comes for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means counted righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
And so the law of God can only bring you the bad news that your righteousness is not enough, that your righteousness falls short. But it's the gospel that brings the good news that there is a righteousness from God that can be yours as a gift. Righteousness, saving righteousness comes as a gift by faith. Not by what I've done, but by trusting what Christ has done. Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so it's not something I work to present to God. I mean, I have, I have blown that one. It is something God gives me through faith. This is why the gospel was such news, such good news for a man like Luther. Before his conversion, if you read his story, he spent years uh, trying to earn the righteousness he knew he needed. That's why he became a monk uh, that's why he went into the monastery in the first place, because he knew his sin. He felt its weight very deeply. And he was told by his church as he sought relief that if it only could work harder and pray longer and fast and discipline himself and do all of these things, then maybe, just maybe, God would accept him. But it, it never actually worked. And he knew that it didn't work. He, he once said, if ever... A monk could have been saved by his monkery, it would have been me. He tried everything. Then one day, while studying the scriptures, his eye fell across this very verse. And he read, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, always before, when he had read that verse, he read those words, the righteousness of God, thinking that what it meant was the perfect righteousness of God by which we are judged. And he hated it. Because all it did was remind him of how righteous God was and how far he fell short of that righteousness. How unrighteous he was in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. That's all he saw. And then suddenly the light came on and he saw for the first time that this righteousness of God in this verse is the kind of righteousness God gives as a gift through faith. That, that this was God declaring a way of salvation not by works we accomplish but by trusting His work to declare us righteous through faith in Christ. Looking back on that event, here's what he said. He said, I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. So this was the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. A righteousness by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. 
This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Then I ran through Scripture as I could from memory, and I found that this is what God does for us. It is the power of God with which He makes us strong. It is the wisdom of God by which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. See, finally, he understood the righteousness God requires, he gives as a gift to those who trust in him. Okay, okay, but how? That's the question. How can God attribute righteousness to unrighteous people like me? You just told us there's no one righteous. So how can God look at us and say, you're righteous if we're not righteous? I mean, if there's anything I know about me personally, it's that I still sin. I still hadn't gotten this perfection thing down. Have you? So what does God do to accept me? To count me as acceptable? How can His righteousness be counted as mine? There's only one way. Somehow God must credit me with the perfect righteousness of another. A righteousness that is not mine must somehow be credited as mine from somewhere else. And this is where the gospel comes in, and it comes in through what is called the, the imputed righteousness of Christ. As long as we're in Romans, look at Romans 4, 4 to 6. Romans 4, 4 to 6, and verse 4, he's talking about those who are still trying to come in the strength and the power of their own works. And he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what is due. You work for this, you're going to get what's your due. And guess what? What's due is not something you want coming. But, verse 5 says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. God counts this person righteous apart from works. This is the imputed righteousness of Christ. To impute something means that you credit it to that account by transfer. You credit it to them. It was not theirs, but you credit it to them as theirs. Here's how it works. If you had a huge debt that you couldn't pay, but Kyle went and paid it for you, Mr. Moneybag sitting over here. No, don't go to Kyle for a loan. It's not going to... But if he could, if Kyle paid that debt for you, when he did it, the bank would credit your account with his money as if you yourself had paid the bill you would get the credit for what He did. That's exactly what Christ has done for us as far as righteousness is concerned, at least for those of us who trust Him. Jesus spent 33 years living a life of perfect obedience to God, earning a record of spotless righteousness with every breath. He's the only one who ever did that. Only Jesus has merited the record of perfect righteousness that God requires. Only Jesus has kept the whole law. Only Jesus has loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every moment of every day. So it is only his perfect righteousness that counts before God. And it is that perfect righteousness which is credited to us by faith when we trust him. 
John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, put it this way, Christ wove a perfect garment of righteousness for 33 years only to give it away to those who trust Him by faith alone. That's what we mean when we say that you are justified by faith in Christ alone. He imputes His righteousness to you. The law of God demands a perfect righteousness. You, the sinner, owe God a perfect righteousness. But Christ steps in with His own infinite supply. All that the law requires, He has done. All of its penalties, He has paid. All of His righteousness is credited to your account as if you paid it yourself. And you were counted righteous before God. Someone has called this the great as-if of the gospel. Christ, the perfectly righteous one, is treated as if He was me, filled with my sin, worthy of my death, while I am treated as if I was Christ, filled with His righteousness, worthy of His life. We need a scripture on that one. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Calvin said it this way, By taking the burden upon Himself both of a perfect life and of a sinner's death, Christ has reconciled us to God as if we ourselves had kept the law and paid the debt. Listen, this is why the gospel is such good news for the ungodly, for sinners like us. By the way, it's why you can't be saved until you understand that you are ungodly and without hope. But it's good news because we're told that we're justified not based on what we've done, but by receiving Christ for all He's done. And that we stand before God eternally, not in the merit of our own good works, but of His. Of His. Okay, when? When does this become yours? When you've worked hard enough for it? When you've paid for the indulgence? (laughs) When you've been good enough? No, no, no. Throughout Scripture, when by faith you trust in Him. So here's the third thing. The gospel by which Christ saves is received into our lives by faith alone. This is why faith alone matters. Look again at verse 17. Just I want it ringing in our ears. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that is in and through completely faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I really don't know how he could have made it any more clear. It is by faith and nothing but faith that we receive this righteousness. It is faith from start to finish, this means. It is by faith alone with nothing added by me. Romans 3.23 said, it's faith apart from the law. Romans 3.28, it's faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.6, it is apart from works. Uh, 23 times, in fact, in Romans 1-4, through 4, Paul says in one way or the other, it's by faith alone, not by works. And yet I still meet people whose hope for eternal life is based not on faith alone, but on something they think they did to merit it. And so let's, let's just make it clear, as clear as we can, by, by looking at what faith is and what faith is not. First, what faith is not. Faith is not what saves you. Some of you think I just spoke heresy. It is not your believing that saves 
Listen carefully. Just like the gospel, it's not faith in and of itself. Faith in and of itself is not a power. Faith in and of itself has no power. People talk about the power of faith. No, faith itself has no power. It's Christ who has the power. So it's Christ who saves by faith. Faith is the instrument He uses. Faith is not a thing in itself. Faith itself never saved anyone. But when by faith you trust in Christ, oh, He is mighty to save. You see the difference? Second, faith is not a work you do. It's not a thing you come up with and give to God so that He'll save you. I've actually heard this kind of thing in revival meetings. Uh, You give God your faith and He'll give you eternal life. No, this is not let's make a deal. Faith isn't a thing you work up and give to God. I like to say it this way, faith is not like spit. Right, spit, I did say spit. Right? What is spit? Well, it's something that you work up. It comes from inside of you. You, you need a big mouthful of spit for some reason to take a big swallow. You just work it up and, it, and you can work it up. It, it, it originates in you and you work it up into your mouth. I know it's gross, but you'll remember this. Faith is not like that. Then what is faith like? As simply as possible, faith is the empty hand that opens to receive God's gift of Christ's righteousness. It's not a feeling that you wait for. It's not something you work up. It's not a power that comes forth from you. In fact, it is a relinquishing of all power as you trust in Him. See, that's it. Faith looks to Christ. Faith believes on Christ. Faith trusts in Christ alone to do what He's promised. The Reformers understood this. In fact, they said that saving faith has three aspects, three elements. And I'm, I'm grateful for Dr. R.C. Sproul years ago in one of his writings pointing this out. And just for me at least, it just clicked. Three aspects of saving faith. First, saving faith begins by acknowledging the facts of the gospel. The Reformers called this noetia. Uh, They've got to use Latin, right? Uh, and, and, and it means to know something. It means to know the data, to know the facts. And you understand there are facts to the gospel. People will say, it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe. Nonsense. There's content to the gospel faith. God did some stuff down here. God came to earth in the form of His Son. He he lived and He died and He rose again. And the Bible and history bear witness to these facts that we must receive. You have to know what Jesus did before you can trust Him for doing it. There are facts involved. And so you need to be informed of the fact of His spotless life, of His saving death, and of His triumphant resurrection. These are the basic truths upon which the gospel stands. As Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are saved. So he's going to remind us what the gospel is. And he says, it's a feeling that you get. No, it didn't say that. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according to the Scriptures. That He was buried, yes, in a real grave. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of all are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
His point, this is the foundation for the gospel. Christ really did these things. And you need to know what He did in order to trust Him for doing it. That is, by the way, why we must go and preach the gospel. As Romans 10 says, how can they believe unless someone preach? Someone must, the, the gospel, never forget, is news. News contains factual truths to be imparted. So the gospel begins with these truths. Without the knowledge of who Christ is and what He's done, no one can be saved. Yet just knowing those facts is not enough. You must believe the one those facts point to. Here's the second aspect. Saving faith believes it's true that Jesus can save. The Reformers called this a census. You assent to the truth. You are convinced that not only is Jesus who He claims to be, but He will do all He's promised to do. You see how we've taken a step here. You believe not only that He really did die on a cross 2,000 years ago, but that His death really did make a payment for sin. You believe not only that He rose bodily from the grave, but that His resurrection proves He is who He is. It verifies everything He claimed, including His power to save all those who will trust in Him. As Paul says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so there are the facts of the Gospel. There's the assenting to the fact that these facts point us to who Jesus is and that He can save. And then third, because even assent alone falls short, if not for this third thing, you yourself must trust Christ to save you. And so the third thing is a personal trust in Christ for all He has promised in the Gospel. The Reformers called this fiducia. And fiducia would be what we would call saving faith. A personal trust in Christ. Not just acknowledging the facts... Not just believing they're true in some technical or historical way, but personally trusting Christ, relying upon Him to do what He says, looking to Christ, trusting His promises, casting all on Him, hoping in nothing but Christ, resting all by faith in Christ for what He has indeed done. Calvin said it this way, faith, he said, is like an empty bottle. Unless we come empty with the, with the mouth of our souls open to seek grace, we are not capable of receiving Christ. Amen. You must come empty by faith alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross of Christ I cling. Is that you? That's the testimony of these we baptized today. Is that your testimony? Are, are you trusting in Christ by faith alone? Will you turn and trust Him now? And if not, why not? <laughs> Do you have questions? Questions are good. And there are people here in this room who would love nothing more than to help you answer those questions. And don't ever let anybody tell you that there's no answer to those questions. Just because somebody you ask doesn't know them doesn't mean they're not there. Ask somebody else. But friend, at the end of the day, you must go to Christ by faith alone. Nothing else. No one else. 
to Him alone by faith because Christ alone can save. And He does it for those who turn and trust Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, had you, had you established a list of rules that we must follow in order to get into your kingdom, we would all fail miserably and in fact have failed repeatedly. That's my testimony, Lord. I could, I could stand here very easily and run through the list of all my failures because I know them. It wasn't just Luther who fell short. Lord, I've fallen short. And one day you opened my eyes to that falling short and saw there was nothing in me that I could bring, nothing in me that I could stand and say, this is worthy. And you lifted my eyes to see Christ who alone is worthy. His perfect, spotless, sinless life in my place. His death under the weight of my sins. His rising again to give assurance that it was accomplished and finished. And now He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Lord, would you give rest to the one who looks to you, who cries out to you, who, 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 who turns from all sin and self, from all trust in what I have done, to trust alone in what Christ has done. He really can save. And then to follow Him, Lord. Baptism as the symbol of that new life, but more importantly, in the life itself of knowing, following, walking with Christ into the eternity that He has prepared for those who trust Him. It is in His name we pray. Amen.